0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello everyone. How's it going? Welcome to the other people podcast. I'm Brad Listey here in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing okay, thanks for tuning in. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Rebecca Mackay, author of a new novel called, I Have Some Questions For You.
1: And, uh, I started there, I started writing with Bodhi showing up at this hotel, with this case already being very famous and her name already being known in association with it. And, and I, you know, I got like 20 pages in and then went, how on earth am I going to get all this backstory in? There's so much I have to get in here. What am I going to do? So that was a wall, and then, and then kind of going, okay, what if I started, you know, a few years back? And really at her moment of awakening to the fact that something had gone wrong in, this, in the quote-unquote solution of this case.
0: Okay, that was Rebecca Mackay, author of the novel I Have Some Questions for You. It publishes this week on Viking Press, one of the most anticipated books of the year. I have some questions for you is about, believe it or not, a podcaster. The main character is a podcaster, a woman named Bodie Kane. She is also a film professor. And in this novel, Bodie Kane returns to her past, to her troubled youth, which was marred by familial tragedy and loss, and also marked in no small way by the 1995 murder of Thalia Keith, her high school classmate and roommate at boarding school. In this novel, Bodie returns to the Granby School in New Hampshire. It's the boarding school where she attended high school, and she is there to teach a two-week course to students on podcasting and audio journalism and storytelling. And while she is there, she is drawn back into her past. I have some questions for you, is part boarding school drama, part period piece. This is very much a book about the 90s and as a child of the 90s, I loved it for that. It is also part forensic whodunit. It is a riveting novel about the lasting impacts of trauma, the failures and complexities of uh, our criminal justice system. It's about race. It's about violence against women, young women in particular. And it's about the persistence of memory and a reckoning with one's past. My conversation with Rebecca Mackay is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by WW w. Norton and company publisher of the novel Margot by Wendell Stevenson, who I recently spoke with on this very podcast. Margot is a coming-of-age novel about a young woman growing up in New York City and out on Long Island in the mid-20th century. In particular, she is coming of age in the 1960s, a time that finds her with a great sense of possibility and also at odds with her domineering mother who has very different ideas about what she should be doing with her life. Margot is a wonderful novel about a very vibrant period In American history, world history, women's history, it's a totally engrossing story. I loved it. I love talking with Wendell Stevenson on this show. You should listen to our conversation. Again, the novel is called Margot. Go get your copy. It is available right now from W.W. Norton and Company. The Other People podcast is offered freely. There are more than 800 episodes of this podcast in existence, and there is no paywall. Every episode is available to listeners free of charge. It's a listener supported show. So I love to offer this thing up for free. I like people to have access, but I need regular listeners and people who find value in what I'm doing to support what I'm doing. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod that's patreon p a t r e o n.com slash other PPL pod help. Keep literary culture moving into the future. We have to support it if we want it to exist. So you can support my show for as little as $1 a month. I try to make it a no-brainer. It's a sliding scale, $1, $3, $5, 10 20 whatever you can swing. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, t-shirts, uh, tote bags, coffee mugs, all that stuff over at patreon.com slash pod. If you would like to read my weekly email newsletter, if you would like to hear from me in your inbox, you can sign up for that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at my website, bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. It is free, it is once a week. It is pretty straightforward. It is essentially an enumerated list of things that I've been reading, like links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So sign up for the newsletter if you are so inclined. I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating, write a review if that's possible. It helps the show find new listeners. The Other People podcast has a YouTube channel. The entire archive is available on the Other People YouTube channel, and you can now watch these conversations on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and then when you get to the channel, hit the subscribe button, it's free. Likewise, you can watch highlights of these conversations. Video clips are available on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. Track the show down on any of these social media feeds. The handle on Twitter is @otherppl. If you have feedback for me, if you would like to write me a letter, tell me a story, all of the above, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. I have a novel out. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. If you want to read my novel, it's a work of autofiction. You can investigate my psyche. You can explore the depths of my mind. Uh, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Go get it if you want to. So once again, my guest is Rebecca Mackay. Her new novel, I Have Some Questions For You, is available from Viking Press. Its official publication date is February 21st, 2023. Rebecca Mackay is based in Chicago. Her other books include the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred Year House, and The Borrower. She is also the author of a short story collection entitled Music for Wartime. The Great Believers, her big breakout novel published back in 2018, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, and it received the ALA Carnegie Medal and the LA Times Book Prize, among other honors. Rebecca's work has been translated into 20 languages and featured all over the place in a wide variety of publications. She is also a teacher. She is on the MFA faculties of Sierra Nevada College and Northwestern University, and she is the artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. I am so pleased to have Rebecca Mackay here on the Other People Show for the first time. So here is my conversation with Rebecca, and her new novel, One More Time, is called I Have Some Questions for You.
1: I live on the campus of the boarding school where my husband teaches. So I was always going to write a boarding school novel at some point. And over time, certain ideas started kind of sticking to that central idea. The idea of mystery, the idea of someone looking back on their past. I was kind of fascinated by the true crime obsession that we seem to be in that started sticking to the idea of a boarding school novel. So it's, I, I, I know that readers are very often looking for sort of that one story of the one thing that I saw and it, and suddenly I had this idea. And the truth is it, it, I have just, you know, long kind of marination phase, the marinating metaphor and the snowball ma- metaphor really don't go together very well. Cause if you marinate a snowball, <laughs> it would be a big mess. so I'm not sure how to <laughs> reconcile that, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's. I, I really, you know, I would. I, I feel like a lot of authors actually manufacture origin stories because it plays better um, in interviews and on the road to have some kind of magical origin story because that's really what readers want to hear. So maybe I should make one up.
0: <laughs> hey, listen, I'm grateful to hear you be candid about that because, a, I think you're right, and then b, I think that the truth is messy usually when it comes to novels. And I I was reading about the origin story for your big breakout book, Mm -hmm. The Great Believers. I think it's okay to classify it that way, right? Oh yeah, sure. And uh, nominated for the Pulitzer, like super big book. And with that one, you didn't even set out to write the book that eventually became The Great Believers. You kind of discovered it almost accidentally on the way. So that feels closer to the truth to me than like I was on a city bus and the person next to me you know, happened to mutter something under her <laughs> breath. And it was this aha moment, right? You right, know, right. It doesn't work
1: like that. Technically, it's like I, I have this origin story for the great believers, but it's the origin story of the novel that I thought I was going to write. And then I wrote a different novel. It's, it's the origin story of a little piece of it that I that got me going. But then things actually went in another direction. I think a lot of times when people look for those stories, it's it's certainly it's a natural question. And it's the kind of thing I I often want to know about a work of art. But I think there's part of it, too, where when people say, you know, what was the spark? What was the idea? Part of what they are asking is, tell me that it's real. Like, you know, tell me that there's something either magic or real life or both about this book that makes it, that, that lets me believe in it even harder. And, you know, I don't think anyone wants the story of, well, it's a work of fiction and I have an overactive imagination and I don't really know where my ideas all come from. It's kind of like dreaming. Where do you get your dreams? I don't know. You know, you had a dream last night and I go, what was the origins point of that dream? You know, what, what why did you decide to dream what you dreamed last night? I don't know.
0: <laughs> right, right. So I've heard, I think I read this maybe in a blurb or one of the early reviews, this book is kind of like, uh, defined, you know, how people have these shorthand ways of trying to make sense of a, a book or movie it's this meets that. And somebody said it's the the secret history meets serial. that kind of gets at least close to the mark for me. It is, you know, and I'm just, I'm wondering if though, if that book and that podcast series, factored in like is it something that you is is the secret history a book that you revere is serial something that you really got into
1: right i i like the secret history a lot i i tore through it maybe 10 15 years ago when i first read it, it i wouldn't say it's an influence on me and i you know i i like a book with a kind of hothouse uh, set up a limited cast of characters in a certain place but you know my uh, first of all, that's a college novel. It's not a boarding school novel, which, you know, I think most—I think some people remember, and then a lot of people don't. They're like, "Oh yeah, my favorite boarding school novel is *The Secret <laughs> History*." No, <laughs> no, it's not. I'm sorry. You might love it, but it, it cannot be your favorite boarding school novel, when it's not about a boarding school, man. It's, no, I mean, it's my my fascination with campus life comes from living the past 21 years of my life on campus rather than from someone else's book. But, um, you know, I liked it. Serial, yes, I think it's very flawed as a podcast. But the case, um, the Adnan Syed case, uh, is something that I've followed in great detail and, you know, was, was particularly interested in the roles of some of these people who at the time really didn't think they had relevant information. And it turns out that they did. And I was interested just in that, that sort of insider-outsider, insider-outsider role that, that some people might find themselves in. Certainly that is not the only, you know, that, that, is, that case is one of many cases that has captured my attention and imagination. It wasn't the first, it wasn't the main one. But like everyone else, I, I got really involved in that case well beyond the serial podcast. There's uh, the Undisclosed podcast uh, that the Chaudhary did after the fact goes goes much more in depth in a really interesting way and really gets into wrongful conviction and how it happens. There are there are other cases that I've just done major deep dives in, and then you know really wondered what I was doing. <laughs> and I've always been particularly interested in this, for for whatever reason in the, the sort of the high school uh, setup for for certain ones of those. What happens when these are people who are kind of adults but really not adults? What happens when, you know, the hierarchies that exist in a high school and you believe are really real and then they have lifelong real repercussions and how do you feel about those when you're 30 years old, when you're 40 years old?
0: So you're a big fan of true crime?
1: No, not necessarily. <laughs> so, I mean, who, who's a fan of crime, right? That doesn't make sense, but like, I, don't, I don't approve of it. I don't like it. I, I have very big issues with true crime as a genre of entertainment i am is
0: is that is that i'm sorry to interrupt but is that what you find flawed about serial is it is it the fact that it's made it into entertainment
1: Uh, no i i find there there were major gaps in the reporting for the sake of telling a good story and and not in a sleazy kind of let's sell out sort of way but there were some major gaps and I, i don't you know i i I I don't find it necessarily deeply problematic. I just find it flawed. But I do not love a lot of the true crime as entertainment. I'm going to tell you a story over 20 minutes on a podcast and we're going to, you know, think we got the full story. I don't love that as a mode of entertainment. For one thing, it often, but not always, reinforces this narrative that, you know, here's a story. They caught the guy. He's in prison, hooray. And you know, what we know in terms of the statistics of wrongful conviction, the ways that overwhelmingly affects people of color, especially black men, there's just so much more to this. And I think this is one of the reasons my book is so long, is you know, the the podcast version of that, or the like YouTube version of true crime, is 15 minutes. And you know, what I wanted to look at was, okay, let's take one of these cases, a case that it's a fictional case, right? But one that we're going to say that a lot of people are obsessed with online. And let's look at the long, realistic version of this and what this means for the people who are actually affected by this case, how they're affected by that online speculation, and, you know, the ethics of all of this. And, what happens when, you know, the, the neat and tidy ending that we thought we got is, abs, you know, is actually false. So that said, I am a person who will find out about something, especially an unsolved case or a case that's questionably solved. And I will spend hours online looking at every photo and every interview and every file. So whatever you want to call that, armchair detective, whatever, like so many people, I have a morbid lurid fascination that i question uh regularly i question why i'm drawn to the cases i'm drawn to i question what's in it for me i question what i'm doing of course while i was the great thing while i was writing this book i had this like nice you know like hall pass on doing that because anything i dove into all well, research for my right, novel right right <laughs> um, so i can have it both ways right I'm, I'm doing this thing in order to critique this thing.
0: Do you think that this kind of tendency is gendered? Like, do you think, because I'm just wondering, like, do you think, because Mm -hmm. gender is an issue in the book and I'm wondering if you think that because victims of violent crime, I don't know, I don't even know what the statistics are, so I could be talking out of turn, but it seems like the kinds of stories that we hear about in true crime podcasts and the like are often about female victims. I'm wondering yeah. if, if you think women tend to be more likely to start true crime podcasts and to kind of get into the minutia of these cases as a way of maybe exploring the pervasive injustices <laughs> perpetrated against women, you know, violent crimes and otherwise. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Mm-hmm. I do. And you know what's, what's interesting, men are much more likely to be the victims of violent crime than women. That tends to be because of altercations that men will get into with other men. It tends to be a bar fight or muggings, sure, gang violence, just you know, physical altercations of of various kinds. And then I don't know if they're counting, I don't think they're counting warfare in those statistics, but then you think of parts of the world where there's a, well, warfare is just kind of like part of daily life. So I don't really know how that breaks down. But in terms of like, Someone, you know, a a domestic partner in terms of, you know, someone, you know, those, those are going to skew more towards women and women are just on a daily basis going to be much more aware of their physical safety or lack thereof in, in situations like, okay, I'm sitting down next to this guy in the airplane, gotta suss out how creepy he is. You know, if he's just said hello to me, how do I both answer? So he isn't angry, but also signal that I really don't want to talk to him. You know, like, like it's just this, this constant uh, way of being in the world. Right. And I, yeah, so yes, I, I do. And I think, I think plenty of people have, have kind of tried to splice that. I do believe that women are drawn to these stories as a way of processing. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, people who have, you you know, have, You have a lot of anxiety about your own safety, about your children's safety and or experience with, you know, close calls or experience with domestic violence or experience with manipulative or abusive partners or, you know, seeing a lot of close friends go through that and and you do want a way of processing all of it.
0: So let's give listeners some orientation to your new book in terms of its protagonist and in terms of the case at the heart of the book. Uh I'll start and I'll let you finish. Okay. And correct me wherever I screw up, but this <laughs> book is about a woman named Bodie Kane. Your protagonist is originally from Indiana but winds up at a boarding school for high school due to difficult circumstances that we can get into. And this boarding school is in New Hampshire and it is called Granby. And I don't know what it is a stand-in for, but it's recognizable, you know, for anybody who's ever seen a boarding school movie or went to boarding school or read a boarding school novel, you know, mm-hmm. there's, I feel like there's some, there's always some crossover, right? Like the Northeast tends to be where they are and wooded.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. New, Hampshire, kind of New Hampshire's got a lot of them. It's funny as like I spend a lot of time in Vermont and I could have written about Vermont with more authority, but there are hardly any boarding schools in Vermont and the ones that are there are like, all about milking goats and like you know being one with nature. And New Hampshire, for some reason, is where the serious old school boarding schools are. So, I was like, all right, guess it's New Hampshire.
0: Okay, so Bodie goes back. We meet her in her adult life. She's a film professor and a podcaster. She has a podcast called *Starlet Fever*, which is about female film stars mm-hmm. uh, of yore. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And she, she gets invited to teach uh, like a two-week, I believe, course on podcasting back at her alma mater, her high school. And she goes back. And that is where the bulk of this novel takes place, or at least a good chunk of it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to hand off to you now mm-hmm. so that you can talk about the case and the yeah. trauma of the past that she is finds herself investigating.
1: Yeah. Basically, yes. Yeah. So, so her junior year, she was paired as roommates with a girl named Thalia Keith, and they weren't particularly friends thalia was very popular on the tennis team and bodie you know not a, not an outcast had her friends but is sort of a backstage theater tech kid and then senior year the following year they no longer live together thalia is found dead after the performance of a musical that she was on stage for and bodie was in the sound booth for she's found dead in the campus pool She has drowned, but she also has significant physical injuries to her head and neck. So this really looks like uh, a murder. And there was only one other person in the gym building that night that, that they know of. This man, Omar Evans, he's a black man in his 20s, and he's the athletic trainer for the school. And he is pretty quickly fingered for the crime based on some rumors and speculations and the fact that he was in the building. And he then has been in prison for over 20 years by the time the novel starts. And when Bodhi goes back, uh, she's teaching these, you know, these high school students who are all starting their own podcasts. And one of these students, wants to look into the 1995 murder of Thalia Keith. And the student feels that the wrong person is in prison. That's not something Bodie believes at the beginning of the novel. But she pretty quickly, and this is you know, early enough that this isn't a spoiler, pretty quickly starts to realize that that might be true and starts to think very hard about the music teacher that she was close to, but that Ellie Keith was particularly close to and that everyone back then speculated there was there was an inappropriate relationship all the students seemed to kind of quote-unquote know about this but no of course nobody's reporting it which was so much what happened in the 90s if I you know. If I talk, look at my own high school experience, almost anyone else,
0: you know. Listen, listen, we are, I mean, I'm roughly the same age as Bodhi. I graduated high school in 1993. So I am mm. squarely like late Gen X, mm-hmm. but, but still Gen X. Yep. And it really, it's so strange because I have a younger sister who's four years younger than I am. And there really was a shift. Yes. Like it's so weird, you know, but like in musical taste and sensibility, like definitely yeah. a shift shortly after I graduated college really, I guess. But, Mm -hmm, uh, the point that I want to make is at a large public high school in Indiana, there was a teacher slash coach who was openly dating a student and Mm -hmm. everyone knew it. And it was like, everyone knew it was like, Oh yeah, they're together. She's, she's 15. He's 32. What does it matter? Mm -hmm. I I would like my friends and I would see them at blockbuster video and be like, Hey, you know, like, (laughs) just, So just different times, different times. Your book is very good on generational divide because you have Mm Bodhi working with these young kids, you know, back at her old, at her old high school, working with these young kids who are light years from her in terms of their sensibility and in many good ways. Right. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you also, um, you know, have her kind of grappling with memory and then interacting with old classmates of hers. Who are her, you know, her mm-hmm. contemporaries, but who have obviously changed through the years and shifted in their perspectives and whatnot. So it's just very fascinating to me on that level, and very relatable, Thanks. and very well done.
1: I had fun with that. It was really, you know, it's it's partly it's fun to see how people might change over time. You know, to that she, I think that's that's really the fun. If any of us can claim to have had fun at a high school reunion, that's the fun of it: is that you remember someone a certain way. And then, oh my God, 20 years later, they are really different. And they it's maybe some outgrowth of that person. You know, they're still the same person, but absolute jackasses who turned out to be lovely or people who were really, you know, really struggled at the time, who really got their lives together or people who seemed to have everything together and just fell apart. And uh, it was fun in the fictional level too. Just, you know, okay. So yeah, like- We see this person in formation. What did they form themselves into? Um, Or how did the world form them into a certain, into a certain life? And then it was really fun. The generation gap, you know, writing about these zoomers basically that she's teaching. And that's, you know, I, it's a generation I know well from, you know, sometimes working with undergrads, uh, certainly living on this campus where I live, although I don't really interact with the students that much now that they're not, they used to be my babysitters. Now my kids are too big, but now I have a high school freshman. And, you know, just they're, you know, of course, exasperating to, you know, I feel like, you know, there's good reason that Gen X finds these younger people a little bit exasperating because everyone's exasperating when they're a teenager or in their early 20s we were exasperating everyone's exasperating but there are also there's also this real progress in the way that they the things they won't stand for the way they look at things the way they question things that you know Bodhi and all of us should have questioned back at the time
0: Yeah I don't know if I was prepared in my adult life like nobody really tipped me off to how inevitable it is I think for human beings if they reach a certain age to eventually come up against generational divide and shifting sensibilities and blind blind mm-hmm. spots that you have just as a function really of the time and the maybe the place that you came up in but yeah. man i feel that often and it's not always pleasant mm-hmm. sometimes it's great other times i'm like damn this is uncomfortable but i think it's probably ultimately
1: right.
0: natural and healthy <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the thing and everyone thinks you know when you're when you're 20 whatever everyone thinks that the That you are the wave of the future. And it's these old people who don't get it. And this is now the way it's going to be. And nobody, when they're 20, understands that everything that they hold sacred, not everything, but the, the things that they think are, you know, progressive and now, and this is it, are going to be outdated. You know, and and so no matter, you know, this is the thing about, you know, anytime someone that age is maybe a little exasperatingly self-righteous, just like, oh, honey, just wait, (laughs) you know, wait 20 years until these, you know, your firmly held beliefs are outdated, laughable, old fashioned, you know, it's going to happen to you. It is going to happen.
0: Listen, I have friends in their 20s who you know writer friends I know a lot of writers and I have had this conversation I've been like hey it's going to happen to <laughs> you too get ready mm-hmm. like wait till you're my age you know like you're yeah. going you think you like you think you're the wave of the future you think thing these issues are solved and then there's going to be oh a genera- there's going to be people 20 years your junior at some point who are going to be coming at you with stuff that you've never even heard of before and right, kind of giving right. you lessons and you're going to feel suddenly antiquated and, and confused. Right.
1: That was it. We really thought in the nineties that we had it solved. We really felt like, okay, we've like, there are a few, a few kinks to work out still, but we have got like sexism, <laughs> racism, homophobia. We're pretty good. <laughs> like, yeah. we know, what were we thinking? But mm you know yeah it's and but then the things that we hadn't even heard of yet right the things that we just didn't even they they weren't even on our radar as issues it's hard it's it's a reason for you know i'm because then i'm reminding myself to be patient with someone who's in their 60s who's going you know what now (laughs) um about about you know things that have uh, things that have popped up you know come into our consciousness in the past in the past 10 20 years that, that, you know, we, you, you're not very, you're not, you're not as clever as you think for having been born later than someone else, you know, like good for you. Right. You were born in 1990 instead of 1940. Wasn't that smart of you? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that enlightened of you? You really made the right choice there.
0: I wonder if maybe social media and the fact that we're all kind of in the same soup a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. More than we you know, maybe used to be in terms of communication has exacerbated the differences in tensions between generations. It seems sort of that way. A lot of the arguments that I see along these lines play out on like Twitter or something. you know. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, that's the downside. On the upside though, it's like, you know, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm able to hear so many more opinions, so many more points of view in depth than I, than I would have been otherwise. And I, and I imagine that's even more true for people who, for instance, don't live in a major city or, don't get around as much (laughs) don't talk to people that different from themselves. You know, the opportunity that you might have, if you're listening to hear why an issue is important to someone, that's huge, Mm. but it's all, yeah, it's, it's tricky. And it's, it's, um, I also think that for better or worse, social media is a a way that, you know, 18 year olds, 20 year olds have a platform that they, and, and, you know, a, a real seat in the public discourse that they didn't necessarily have 20 years ago. When what were you gonna do? Like have a protest on campus, but you're not actually your voice isn't actually out there. And there are great things about that. And then there are things that are you know can be a little frustrating. Like well, okay, but you're 18 and like you're gonna realize in a few years that things aren't that black and white. But the thing is, there's always some new 18 year old coming along behind you who thinks that things are that black and white, and they're gonna be really loud on Twitter still. So <laughs> yeah.
0: This comes into play. I think social media comes into play in your novel in a significant yeah. way. But this is not as good as a, of an opportunity as any to talk about plot. Because one of the things that I greatly admire about you as a writer and in this book is how wonderfully plotted it is. Thank I think you. a lot of literary fiction writers maybe struggle with this. You do not. Maybe you struggle with it, but you've, you've <laughs> overcome those struggles. This is a masterfully plotted book. And I want to give readers a sense of the various threads that you're weaving here without spoiling anything so and mm. again feel free to add subtract correct but there is the obvious murder thread there is the death of Falia Keith there is Bodhi revisiting her old boarding school for this two-week teaching gig and kind of reimmersing herself in that case and reinvestigating what happened there's the thread the plot thread about Bodhi on campus reconnecting with old friends, interacting with these students, crossing the generational divide, getting their perspective on what happened to Falia, kind of maybe seeing herself you know in comparison to them you know when you hang out with people at that age mm-hmm. it invites you to remember yourself at that age. Right exactly. There is Bodhi and her ex-husband. Uh, they share children mm-hmm. together, but then there is a subplot in the novel involving, a young woman who goes on social media and accuses Bodhi's ex-husband of inappropriate behavior in a relationship that they right. had prior to, I believe, Bodhi's marriage to, the, to him. Right. So it's like one of these right. things where like many, many years after the fact, a woman, she's a performance artist, stages this kind of performance piece where she mm-hmm. um, calls him out. And I think it's like a cancellation type scenario that Bodhi has to navigate in the midst of this stay at Granby boarding school. Teaching these yeah. students, it all comes to a head. You know, it's in the in the way of great plotting. It's like, whoa, this is a big couple of weeks for her. Um, <laughs> and then another thread that is woven through the book, uh, maybe a bit more lightly, but still in a way that, as a reader, kept me turning pages and wondering what was going to happen, was Bodhi's romantic life. You sort of got the mm-hmm. sense as a reader, like, well, she's going to something's going to happen. I didn't know quite what, and that's to your credit because I think. Maybe there is some truth to the idea that when a book is really well plotted, there are multiple plots or the main, right. the main plot, the subplots, and they're all working well, you know, in their, own, yeah. in their own way. And I just want to know how you did it. Is this, something, <laughs> is this something that you are just naturally good at? Is this something you've worked at? Are there specific things you've learned through your time, you know, in, right. the, in the trenches that helped you get to where you are now?
1: It's a good question. I, I think it's both. I, I I tend to start with plot. I love plot. I'm easily bored and so I, I have a I think a very solid sense of when someone else might be bored and kinda, you know, do everything I can to to keep that from happening. Are you bored um, are you bored right
0: now? Are you okay? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: good. No. But uh, you know, just you know, I, I have a hard time, you know, reading and it's like, well, you're telling me about, you know, this person's week or day, but why this day? Why this week? Why, why of all the things in this person's life that you could tell me about, why are you telling me about this? And sometimes there's not a very good answer for that. So I, I do think, you know, I am just naturally a, a plotty person, but I've, I've also absolutely made a study of it. Just, you know, everything from, I mean, Aristotle's poetics it's all in there however many thousand years ago he has this kind of dig in there and I I'm misquoting it but then of course it's translated anyway where he's like you know many is the poet who can write a great line but few can tell a good story it's something but it's it's kind of more of a sick burn than that and I remember just circling that and being like You really, it's like you were, you know, it's like you've been teaching undergrads. Oh my God. And, uh, you know, he, he gets into structure. I love talking structure with my students. I teach, you know, mostly either graduate students or just adults, you know, post-grad or, or on their own and plot, you know, the, the, the craft part of plot is something that does not tend to get talked about nearly enough in writing education there was a while there where I think it was considered really cheesy to talk about, like people felt like they were just, you know, oh no, that's that's for Danielle Steele, that's not for you guys, it's not for academia. And I think there's been enough pushback where students are actually really desperate to learn about plot, because <laughs> it matters hugely, that more people are talking about architecture, right? Not formula, certainly. But what are the elements of plot? What is momentum? What does that feel like? How do you achieve that? How, how
0: do you? Um,
1: <laughs> momentum? <laughs> um, here's also, I mean, many ways, but I'll, so I'll say, you know, beyond, obviously, you know, putting things at stake, asking, you know, always having some ball up in the air, making sure we know what a character wants, or I would say, I would say wants, needs, or fears, you know, that is momentum and counterintuitively slowing down and giving us a character's real interiority is often the fuel for that momentum. I think people are, I I see a lot of students who are really afraid to slow down the the action, the scene, anything like that, because they think if they do that, they're going to bore us. And certainly if they slowed it down to have someone stare out the window and look at the grass, they would. But slowing down just beat by beat to let us know what someone's thinking, to let us know what's on the line and why, that's gas in your tank. And, you know, yeah. Did it take you five minutes to stop for gas? Yes. But are you going to get a lot farther that way rather than running out of fuel on the side of the road? Also, yes. So I... um, I I think it, you know, so often people run out of momentum because they were too afraid to slow down earlier on to let us know who someone is and to really put emotional and tangible real world mistakes on the table.
0: So do you outline?
1: Yes. So I tend to outline when I'm about a third of the way into something usually because that's when you hit a wall, right? So you, you're you like, you get this idea and you're like, wee, and you're, you know, happy monkey at the typewriter. And you get a certain distance in and then you hit the wall. And of course, the wrong thing to do there is to go, oh, I'm a bad writer, or this is a faulty project, or, oh, I have writer's block. Hitting that wall is a natural thing. And it just means, okay, now it's time to think with your left brain, stop for a minute, get out all the school supplies, get out the note cards, whatever it is that you're going to do and think strategically, think architecturally, go back, retroactively outline what you already have and then see how you can move forward. And, and I just, you know, you outline as far as you can.
0: So it sounds like something you've done yourself. And I I assume you did that on this book. You hit the wall on this book at some point in an early draft. The other thing i i would say about a book that is as finely plotted as yours is that it feels there's this feeling of layeredness you know there's Mm -hmm. all these different threads it's it's a braided plot right i mean you have all these different subplots happening and it just feels like the kind of thing that was arrived at after many revisions you know it's like I, i guess the question is can you remember where you hit a wall and had to start outlining and were there layers to the plot that maybe came to you after an outlining process or after having somebody, you know, be an early reader and point out some sort of inconsistency or gap or something. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think with this one, the first wall I hit was my original intention. So, you know, there, there are two parts to the book about the first three quarters of the book is she goes back and she's teaching this class and this case gets reopened essentially by the end of it. And the last quarter is all these people have reconvened four years later for a hearing for retrial for this guy, Omar, who's in prison. My initial idea was only that last quarter of the novel, kind of like what would happen if all these high school classmates had to be in this hotel in New Hampshire because none of them live in this area anymore because they never did. And they're not really allowed to talk to each other, but they do. Um, And I I started there. I started writing with Bodhi showing up at this hotel with this case already being very famous and her name already being known in association with it. And there was just, and and I, you know, I got like 20 pages in and then went, how am I, how on earth am I going to get all this backstory in? There's so much I have to get in here. What am I going to do? And then, you know, thought about that for a long time, did a lot of, it's not so much, you know, not an outline, like, you know, Roman numerals, A, B, and then A, you know, like the sixth grade, right? right, right. It's not that kind of outline, but the notes to myself, the, you know, drawing pictures of it, whatever it is that, that makes it make sense. And um, so that was a wall. And then, and then kind of going, okay, what if I started, you know, a few years back and, really at her moment of awakening to the fact that this, that something had gone wrong in this, in the quote unquote solution of this case. So then went back to that and then, you know, at different points, not so much hitting a wall, like, Oh my God, I'm stuck, but going, okay, I can't continue writing now until I know exactly what the timeline of that night when Thalia died really was. So you know, I'm, I'm going to get it to a certain point, and now I need to have the minute by minute. I need to have the campus map, distances between everything. I need to know the minute by minute timeline, and I need to know how she actually died. And uh, so there, there was a lot of then, you know, a lot of plotting of that out. And other possible solutions, because you know, Bodhi goes through a, diff- a number of different possibilities of how this could have how this could have occurred. I think it was good for me to start really not knowing what had happened, because I don't want the book to start out knowing what happened. Uh, you know, if, if I know that I don't accidentally reveal very early on, I don't telegraph really early what happened because I didn't know when I was originally drafting that part of the book, and you know, but th- then I figured it out part way through and certainly then went back and, and put in the tiny pieces um, that, you know, the breadcrumbs or, you know, the things that would lead to that or made sure that certain people were in the right place at the right time. But it's kind of, you know, sort of outlining when it's necessary to, and, but, but the, the big key to that is recognizing when it is necessary that, you know, when you are stuck, it is not because this is a bad project. It's not because you're lazy and it's not because you somehow, you know, caught viral writer's block at AWP or something, right? Like it's not an actual condition. You need to just think in it with a different part of your brain. You know?
0: There are people probably listening to this on the subway, just like shedding a single tear right now who've been struggling. With their
1: <laughs> but it should be good news. Yes. It's, it's good. It's no. like, it's like that wall that you hit. Yeah. And also, so like one of one of my main teaching gigs is um, I'm, I'm artistic director at Story Studio Chicago where we do, you know, it's adult, uh, kids too, but I teach adult writing classes and I teach a year long novel workshop and this mm-hmm. is application based. So I teach, you know, these are really good writers and they're usually, you know, they're coming because they've usually have started a novel and then are realized they need help, right? And the absolute most common places by far for people coming in is either they've gotten to page 30 or they've gotten to page a hundred. Hmm. And that's where they hit the wall. And I think the page 30 thing is like, I had this idea and I started writing and it was really fun, but I don't know what I'm doing. Oh my God, help. And the page 100 thing is like, you know, they really did have an idea what they were doing. They have a sense and they have a sense of what they want this to be. And they've maybe even planned it out a little, but they get to page hundred and they've lost all, the book has lost all its momentum because that one initial idea you, you, they just can't sustain that for 300 pages and they there's stuff they need to learn about architecture about subplots about uh, momentum that that's going to sustain that but it's it's you know they think that they ran out of steam what actually happened is the plot ran out of steam hmm. and there are there are craft solutions to that what are they <laughs> <laughs> well it is I mean it's the outlining right it's the that you know making sure that it's you know kind of shahrazading the plot a lot of it right is like going in and going okay so you know here's this one arc if this Problem is being solved, at least momentarily. What else is there to come in? I'm using hand gestures that no one's going to be able to see, um, my, my primary mode of communication. <laughs> um, but I, I'm drawing arcs in the air with my fingers here. So just stopping, you know, stopping and backing up far enough that you can see the shape. You know, can you get the aerial view of this thing? Or, or are you looking at it on your computer in sections two inches long? because that's what your computer shows you. And so you're seeing your novel two inches at a time when it is a 300-page document. And you're not going to be able to see literally all of a 300-page document at once, but you can draw it, you can put it on note cards, you can do plot arcs, you can do the shapes that make sense to you, you can make lists, you can do scene lists. That's how you can see the whole thing.
0: At what point in the process does, did this book feel like it was clicking into place where you kind of had a handle on it? You know what I'm saying? Like, what, hmm. where were you? Was it like, oh, you know, towards the end of that first draft, I had it. Or maybe it was draft three. Like, just do you have a sense of when that yeah. happened?
1: I'll say pretty cryptically, there is a, so this will this will, I'll say it in a way that anyone who's read it will understand. There is a female character who really emerges quite near the end of the book someone that Bodhi had known in high school who kind of shows up at this hotel at the hearing for a retrial and tells her story and um, really turns out to, to have a lot of the information that was needed all along. And, you know, someone who we might've seen as, as a pretty stock character, as a pretty minor character is someone with her own traumas and just really, you know, has her side of things. When she, started talking and she was not a character. I really, you know, had invested much in before then. I didn't, I didn't particularly know that she was going to be the one to unlock a lot of this stuff. Um, But there's a scene in the hotel fitness room. (laughs) And when she starts talking, that for me was like, okay, I, I see this, I'm seeing how this all comes together. And I really, I really did not know what she was going to say until she started talking. I knew What had happened but i did not know what pieces of the puzzle she was going to have
0: really and
1: yeah Mm -hmm. wow that's Mm -hmm.
0: that's interesting to me because that's pretty late in the game and you're drafting this thing and then it's that must have been a thrill for you as a writer
1: it was yeah yeah that um you know she's basically she's the person who you know all these things that we've been wondering about Fally about the the victim she was she was up close. She saw this happen. She knows whether there was a relationship with the music teacher. She knows what other men were in Thalia's life. She experienced a lot of these things firsthand. And so the, basically it was the stuff that I knew about Thalia. It was the stuff that I knew had happened, but this character kind of emerging to be like, okay, here's here's what I saw. Here's what I know. That just felt to me like everything clicking into place. You know, there's certain scenes that, that do feel like they write themselves. That you know they certainly don't. That would be amazing. But um, there, there are certain scenes where you go, okay, this really—it's going along. It is more like dreaming, right? Like I said at the beginning of the of the podcast, like you, you're not really fully in control. It's like lucid dreaming, I guess, right? Like it's it's just happening. It's just coming to you. But in this particular case, in a it, you know in a way that really was tying everything together in the plot.
0: Well hearing you talk about this, it's a good lesson from a writerly per- perspective to know that someone as accomplished as you was working on a long, it's a long book. It's like 450 pages almost. So I don't know how many words that comes out to, but you were deep into the weeds in this book in a significant draft of this book and didn't really figure it out on your own until close to the end. And what I'm thinking is yeah. about about is the stamina that it takes to finish a novel and the stamina not only to just do the work day after day, but also to live with the uncertainty. Like mm-hmm. you talk you talk about hitting the wall and you talk about people sort of throwing their hands up in the air and quitting because they think they're bad or they did it wrong instead mm-hmm. of persevering and stepping back and taking a breath and writing an outline. But there's also this, you know, these feelings of uncertainty that writers who work in any kind of long form project have to learn to live with. Uncertainty Mm -hmm. about whether anyone's going to like it. (laughs) Uncertainty about whether anyone's going to read it. Uncertainty about whether it's a good idea to begin with. You know, uncertainty about whether or not you're going to be able to figure it out. You've gotten good, it seems like, as anyone must, at just waking up day after day and having some degree of confidence that it's going to sort itself out, right?
1: Yeah, or that I'm going to sort it out, Yeah, right? It's, I mean, I yeah I, I will say like I'm not someone who has desk drawer novels. I don't have novels that I wrote and then gave up on or that I got pretty far into and then was like, I don't know. I just I I feel as a matter of just, you know, personal MO that any novel is fixable. There's, you know, it, I, I would certainly, if I really lost interest for some reason in a novel, I would absolutely give up on it. It just, you know, hasn't really happened. You know, I, I it's they're all solvable problems. They are all executable. You know, I remember, like, years ago, student... This is, I I don't, I do not say derogatory things about my students, except in this case, it was a student who every time I gave him feedback, he'd send me back a point by point rebuttal. So I feel like I can, I can uh, be snarky about this particular student, graduate level student. And he, I was telling Rob Spillman, who was then the editor of Tin House, that the student had just sent me a 30 page short story that was World of Warcraft fan fiction, complete with screen captures. And I needed to go in there and give him notes, knowing that this person would send me rebuttals. And I was like, Oh my God. So I was, I told this to Rob Spillman and he said, Oh my God, that actually sounds amazing though. Like I would totally read that. And I said, but what you're imagining is like the George Saunders version of that story. You're imagining, right? This as, you know, to me, I'm looking at that like, Oh God, why, you know, why, why, why? But, that's there's no inherently bad concept unless something wildly offensive, right? There's there's no inherently bad plot idea, and if you try to describe the plot of Hamlet, right, to someone, it sounds like slapstick comedy. Like, do you think this is a good idea for a, a story? Okay, this guy, his uncle killed his dad, <laughs> and then he stabbed someone through a curtain, and then <laughs> sounds right bananas right? Right, right start describing Frankenstein right right these are not like inherently fabulous ideas it's all the execution and any you know any idea can be executed and you know I, I there there are legitimate reasons to give up on something but this is flawed some is it, not one of them because it's it's not inherently flawed it's just a sloppy
0: draft. Right. 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 And in hearing you talk about verbally pitching a story and how like the greatest, most time tested narratives in human history, many of them don't pass the test. If you try to start pitching them verbally, which has always frustrated me about mm-hmm. Hollywood, like as an LA resident, the Hollywood <laughs> thing, like they ask you to verbally pitch stuff and it's like oh my god like what a nightmare to have to talk about your like the long arc of your series or whatever it's just like yeah it's difficult difficult to do well let's put it that way and i feel like even great great stories are often resistant to the process and yeah i want to ask you about uh an aspect of i have some questions for you that i couldn't help but notice and it has to do Mm -hmm. with characters and their narratives uh, like I feel like maybe this is just me reading into it and this was never even on your radar, but I, I kind of feel like it must've been that you have narratives in particular, female narratives, but not just, you know, cause I think Omar qualifies to actually all the characters do, but they're mm-hmm. all the main characters, but you have at the heart of this, a character struggling to wrest control of the narrative and. I think mm-hmm. that's her, her personal narrative. Bodhi's trying to kind mm-hmm. of like sift through her past. I think she is also a person who comes from a hard Scrabble background, a lot of grief in her childhood, mm-hmm. kind of wanted to write her own story, kind of get her way or find her way out of that dark narrative and into greener pastures to stay right. with, the, with an Indiana like motif. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> uh, and then you have Thalia, whose story has been unjustly ended. Uh, at, mm-hmm. at, at too early a time you have omar whose story has taken this grim turn where he finds himself locked in prison unjustly for all these Mm -hmm. years so on and so forth but this is really a thematic concern of yours no is people trying to control their own narratives or or understand them even
1: yeah yeah specific you know specific to this book it's not not a theme necessarily of my other work it's really you know it's endemic to to i have some questions for you there's even, you know, I think in the telling even where it is this it, it is this kind of strange second person thing I'm doing where she is, it's first person. She's telling the story, but she's addressing everything to this music teacher. That's the you of the title. And she has this, you know, kind of explanation or thought process of saying, it's, it's not that she's writing it to him, right? She's just kind of thinking it at him. And she says that, you know, she's in certain times in her life always feels like she's narrating to someone or being watched by someone that's something that that is definitely true of me i know it might be you know not the most common pathology but just you know different people who are on my mind i feel like well then they're the one watching me go about my day or do this thing that I'm doing. It's not constant, but but it happens. And especially if you revisit a place, maybe especially if it's someone you've lost, I think that's that's a common version of this, right? Like uh, someone who's passed away and you go back to a place or you're thinking of them in a certain way, you feel like they're watching you. Whether or not that's literally your religious belief about the afterlife, you just, you just act that way. You feel that way. You're talking to them in your head. And I just tend to do that more often than that, and not with not necessarily with with people who have died. You know, that that is a part of myself that I that I gave her, and so there is just built you know kind of baked into the narration even itself this question of who's telling what story and to whom are we telling this story and, and are we in control of that narrative? Are we you know which especially narratives about memory, you know what do we remember about what happened? How accurate is that? Who does that serve? What do we share about what we remember and what do we keep private? And yeah, I think you could go through, this would be the like, you know, if someone for some reason needed to write a paper on this book, right? Comparing for different characters in what ways they control their narrative and what ways they attempt to control their narrative and how successful that is. Uh, I haven't, you know, figured that all out either. You know, my job as the author is to raise all those questions and then complicate them and go, I don't know, here, what is this? And I think someone else could probably make better sense of what I've done than I could. But it's, you know, it's definitely a thematic concern and a, and a narrative concern as well.
0: Well, I've got to say, I'm gratified that your novel features a podcaster as its protagonist. Uh- <laughs> this is, uh, I think, maybe the first novel I've read, not that there haven't been others, but I think it's the first one I've read where there's a podcaster in the lead role.
1: That's cool. What I've learned, you know, and of course I had this moment of panic of like, oh my God, everyone's doing this. What I've learned is that I think there have been a bunch that tend to be maybe a little bit more mass market uh, mysteries. So kind of a, you know, a podcaster looking into a cold case who gets in over their head and then they're kidnapped and then, the, you know, that that kind of, I think, rollicking, good time, fun, which certainly I hope my book is fun. I hope people find it fun, but it's maybe, you know, it's it's at least trying to uh, give a more serious ride as well. But yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've learned, of course, because, you know, what, as soon as you start to rate something or, or, or publish something, everyone tells you literally everything else that's out there that's in any way related. <laughs> um, and that that freaks some people out, especially first-time writers, where they... They tell people they're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm writing a book that's, you know, set at a boarding school, and people go, oh, you mean exactly like the Secret History? <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, and it's like, no, wait, it's not even about a boarding school, and, and no, it's nothing like. Um, but, but I've I've known many writers who get you know, waked out by that. But so of course I'm I'm the person who's heard about literally every every book out there with a podcaster, but I haven't read any of them either. I don't I don't yeah. know exactly what's out there.
0: So. I'm wondering about the pressure that you may have felt to follow up a book that hit as big as The Great Believers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. It's kind of got the ride that every writer of literary fiction hopes their book will get, yeah. right? It's like, whoa, yeah, it did. people really connected with that one. Booksellers embraced it, the whole nine yards. And then it's like, okay, Rebecca, what's next? Like, How did you handle that?
1: I mean you know for one thing i i had already i had not started writing this one yet but i had it was definitely stewing already right it was in that that snowball marination phase and uh so it's not like i went oh god okay this is what happened to the great believers now what shall my next step be it was it was already pretty much decided and there was, I think, if, there on the one hand, there's, there was definitely some freedom of going, you know, because I, th- I think, especially as a woman, early on, it was like, well, am I going to be taken seriously? And I wasn't always in reviews. People would would pick out kind of the the most frivolous aspects of what I was doing, or equate me with my narrator, or you know, just those those ways in which people can be can be really not taken seriously. And you know, I think without. The ways that, that that the great believers was taken seriously, I might have shied away from. Okay, it's going to be a podcast or a murder mystery, boarding school, because there, you know, there's a version of the reception for this book that would be, you know, oh, it's a romp where that's of my first two books. People couldn't stop calling them romps. It was it was really frustrating. They were not romps, but like it's all you know, it's a lighthearted romp where this young woman returns to her high school days, and we get to explore high school, you know. And I I do, like I said, I do help people think that it's a fun book. But I think there, there were elements that I would have been nervous about, not knowing whether I would be taken seriously if I included them, not knowing if they would be, if people would fixate on those as kind of the only things going on. And so that was liberating. It was also, of course, terrifying, because, you know, I, I joked I was going to write too great to believe with the number two, like as my follow-up, like just like, I'll give you guys more of this, whatever. Like there, are you happy? So there, you know, there are people certainly who just probably discovered me through the great believers who are going to just be disappointed in whatever I write next. If it's not the great believers, which it isn't. And, uh, but that's a, that's a lovely place to be. You know, I, if, if, if they liked something and they're mad that this isn't it again, I'm fine with that, and and they can always reread, or I can give them a lot of other phenomenal fiction and nonfiction about the AIDS epidemic that they should be reading. But uh, so yeah, equal parts liberating and terrifying. That's basically it.
0: <laughs> but you got this. Then this book feels like it was. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this book feels like it was written fairly recently. It has a lot of contemporary flourishes, like the pandemic and stuff like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then this is well, that to- was in editing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. But I mean, just like totally my intuition. But I was just like, wow. I feel like Rebecca, when she gets her like hooks into a project actually can write pretty fast.
1: I I do. It's true. I'm not someone who writes every day. I, I get into kind of, I do a lot of, you know, I'll go to a residency and write for like two weeks nonstop Uh, and then I'll, you know, if if I'm really into something, I'll keep going. No, I started, I, I know I really started like typing this book in April of 2019. Um, like actually composing, actually drafting, and then was revising, you know, it's you get down into like copy edits, but one little word can change everything. That was through last summer. The pandemic stuff, oh my God, I, you know, so I was writing in 2019 and then I'm writing in 2020 and going, well, I'll just avoid the pandemic somehow. But then it's going on and on. And then I go, well, I can't You know, I need this to be over several years. I don't want to move it way back in time. Okay, I guess I... So originally it was like, well, I'll put the first part in 2018. And I'll set the second part in 2022 when the pandemic will surely be completely over. Easy. And then 2022 was getting closer and closer and the pandemic was not over. And so I went, okay, now I have to go in and put face masks on everybody. And do all this social distancing stuff. This is like you know, that December or that November December. So I had to go in, and you know, every time it said she smiled, I'm like she seemed to smile from her eye crinkles above her face mask, and I deduced. And uh, and then I then New Hampshire lifted its mask mandate. Right, like I was writing about March of 2020, or I was it was editing. It was March of 2022. And editing these pages about March of 2022. So then I went back in and I took some of the face masks off some of the people, <laughs> I kept them on other people, and I, you know, saying things like, "Well, I took my mask off to eat this party food." <laughs> like, I, I was stressed out at the time. Now it just seems funny.
0: <laughs> right, but those are the details you got to do. I mean, I, otherwise, the the other option is you completely shift the timeline for the book and the chronology and. That comes, with its right. own, that comes with its own set of changes and headaches. So it's...
1: Right. Your... Or I pretend that it doesn't exist in time, that it's just like on this other planet. Right. That's not really going to work. The, you know, like, oh, no, exactly how old are you? How much distance are you looking back on high school from? This matters.
0: Yeah. Well, no. And I think like, you know, people often pointed to the great believers as like this 1980s novel. That's not the only way to think of it, but you know, it's a book mm-hmm. that's very much associated with that decade. And then... I think people have pointed to this book as like a 90s novel. And
1: <laughs> I don't
0: know, but I feel like that is I don't think that's the whole story, obviously, but I do feel like that's kind of integral to it. Like that's a lot of the fun of it really is the yeah. the difference between memory and re- and uh, the present day and I yeah. don't know as a child of the 90s, that that part of it I loved.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny the the last thing as a kid that I wanted to be before I decided in like eighth grade that I wanted to be a writer, the last thing was I wanted to be a historian. And I feel like I found a way to do that. You know, the really, really only my first novel um, was not in some way historic. And it's, it is funny to think about the nineties being historic. That is, that is kind of hilarious, but in some ways it is. And, and certain, certain ones in my books and the thing I'm working on next are, are you know, more significantly like, yeah, research heavy historic, but uh, I, I loved digging back into the details and, just, I made myself like Spotify playlists that were only music from, really from 1994, because I'm figuring, but you know, spring of 1995, these kids are in the woods, they might have like one college radio station, they're really listening to last year's music still. So the music of 1994, Spotify, that's, uh, it was my jam for like three years straight.
0: Was, is These Are the Days, that factors into this book, right? Yeah. That fucking yeah, song. Yeah, That song yeah. was like, all, you know, I remember all the girls in my class like singing that song. Totally. That and and uh, Closer to Fine by... Um, oh, yes. By who? Who is that yes. by? The, the Indigo
1: Girls. Indigo Girls. Anyone yeah. who had a guitar. Yeah. And then if you were, you know, like I learned how to do the alto part on that so you could like sing harmony when you, when you joined in. That was <laughs> endless fun.
0: <laughs> so what is it about a boarding school that is so fucking creepy. Maybe it's just that, <laughs> no, and I don't mean, I don't mean like that as a critique of like the social or cultural or economic issues. I just, no, no. I just mean like as a setting, like
1: right. as soon as
0: you get me on that campus and like there start, your book has such a great eeriness to it. It's mm. haunting, you know, if this young girl gets killed, obviously okay. it's haunting, but like I have to believe a part of the you know part of that effect is heightened by the fact that it's on this campus maybe because it's involving kids maybe because it's it's mm-hmm. isolated in the woods it's always a boarding school in the woods somewhere and it's insular and
1: mm-hmm. here's my theory so if you look at let's say you take a house and you know over the past you know 50 years two families have lived in it right and so it you know, if you look back on the original owners, it feels like a while back, but it doesn't feel like that far back. It's There's a little history, right? The thing about a boarding school or a college campus also is the place is very permanent, but people are only there for four years. And so you have in the past 50 years, okay, what's 50 divided by four, 13, something like that, right? However many generations of people have come through there and at very liminal vulnerable times in their lives with all this energy. And so you've, you've got, you know, so many like real generations of history passing through there so quickly that these places end up being kind of fundamentally ancient and haunted in the way that some place normally wouldn't be unless it were, you know, 400 years old and in some cases these boarding schools are you know 400 years old 200 years old but they've experienced so much more history i think that, that i think that's a lot of it i think there's also there certainly is like a people keep talking about this dark academia vibe that like is apparently a whole clothing aesthetic as well as I, I'm, a literary I'm, genre. I'm wearing it
0: right now actually i've got a uh yeah, my, my black <laughs> hoodie <laughs>
1: You know, I think you need like some, I think you need like a a blazer and um, yeah, like a, like a blood red tie. You need to be like really sad and pasty, (laughs) but uh, I think there's, you know, the, this, the book does take umbrage with that, like a little, you know, talking about the ways that people romanticize boarding school life, the, the things that people think about a boarding school because of the way it's been portrayed in movies And there is this, you know, I get a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about that, the way that, you know, you see a boarding school in a movie, it's always October. The leaves are always changing. It's always, you know, there are just certain tropes that that you have to go with, and they tend to be kind of creepy tropes. And actual boarding schools are incredibly vibrant, you know, places. It just, like Bodhi says to someone who's working with her, just, you know, imagine a liberal arts college. It's just that they're a little younger. So I don't know. It's, again, it's, you know, it's kind of uh, sort of like I was saying with the true crime and I am having it both ways. Like I, I am critiquing the tropes and the, the weirdness of the way people think about it, but I'm also partaking in that. I'm also using it and having a lot of fun with it.
0: So I want to ask you about research because another thing that mm-hmm. this novel does really well is, In the section of the book where things get procedural and legal, it's very believable and it feels like you did your homework. And I know I just from kind of poking around in the acknowledgments that you had some help, but I think for people out there, people out there who are writerly will appreciate knowing more about how you handled that aspect of the book and making sure that you sort of dotted your I's and crossed your T's and got that stuff right.
1: Yeah. And again, yeah, this is, you know, I'm really going for as much of a, you know, I'm going for a vibe here, but I'm also really going for realism and, you know, did not want the Perry Mason version of legal proceedings that we so often see or the law and order version, you know? So, yeah, no, I, I was so fortunate. Someone hooked me up with, um, an incredible public defender from New Hampshire. Um, cause it's, 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 you know, very specific to state by state, what the laws are, what the way things work. And uh, I've I spoken to some other lawyers as well, but she was the one who really just beat by beat was able to help me with, okay, so, you know, what would happen in this case? What would happen in this case? She was also able just to provide details for me, like things about, like very real and horrible um, detail about not always being able to get the defendant food on the day of the trial that she was talking about her, a lot of her uh, clients feels like the wrong word, but the the people she's defending, you know, they're woken up at 6am and given a breakfast with one serving sent to court. They don't get to eat all day. And by the time they get back to the state prison, they've missed dinner. And that happens for many days in a row. And like, Oh my God. And that's not something, you know, you, you partly do research to find the answers to your questions you also do research to find things that you never even knew to ask about. I never would have thought to ask about that. right? And then it's something we've been able to include. So yeah, it's, you know, it was a little, some of this stuff is a little head spinning of, you know, just the trying to make this work logistically and, you know, asking, okay, you know, under what circumstances would this happen? Cause I really want this to happen and <laughs> we're trying to find um, some loophole for something, but, but I'm incredibly grateful to her. And you know, I, I've never regretted taking time to do more research when I'm writing.
0: So Bodie is not only a podcaster with a fixation on this particular crime from her youth, but she's also a film professor. And she, as we talked mm-hmm. about early in the conversation, has sort of made a name for herself with this podcast, Starlet Fever, which invests, uh, investigates or dives into the lives of film, female film stars of the past. And Mm -hmm. she's, you know, obviously a cinephile. I'm wondering if you are, like, do you, are you like a (laughs) film junkie or is that a part of the book that you also had to do, maybe do some research for?
1: Yeah. I wish I were more of a film junkie than I am. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm like, I'm one of these people who, even some of the movies she references, I have not actually seen. That's terrible. I love film, but I'll say like, I just, you know, okay. So my, my oldest kid is 15 So starting 15 years ago, like, I don't have time to watch a full movie. (laughs) It's very, very rare. Now my kids are older, but it's still like, well, now we're like in this golden age of TV, right? And I'm incredibly busy for career reasons. So am I going to sit down and watch a two and a half hour movie at the end of the day? Or am I going to watch an episode of Fleischman is in Trouble, which is amazing. And so in terms of, there are a lot of really classic films that I absolutely have not seen. And, but, but no, I I mean, I, I definitely have read up on film history, film theory, partly out of interest, and then partly for this book, Mm. was, you know, going through some, some documentary series about the history of film, especially, you know, really trying to figure out what are the things she would be covering in a film history course, what are the ways she would be talking about film, so um, I wish I could say, that I was working from some encyclopedic knowledge of film. And, you know, I just could pull something about, you know, some director and put it on the page. But it was it was actually research.
0: Oh, well, you fooled me. And you got the LA parts pretty, you know, pretty, <laughs> I was in Los Angelino. I was like, oh, yeah, the plant life, the traffic, like you hit some of these uh, little notes and oh, good. made it feel real. Like I totally bought that she was from LA. Good. And I'm wondering, I guess uh, before I let you go, I always ask people, what they're working on if they have anything else going and I it's kind of a a rude question because here you are having finished this big project celebrating its publication but usually there's more than one iron in the fire or yeah marinating snowball I guess if we're going to continue this for the course
1: listen as you stick the snowball on the iron you put it in the cauldron over the fire you marinate it for a long time a little
0: teriyaki and
1: you hope it doesn't melt. there
0: you go so what's going on and oh I guess like Before we get to maybe the next book project, I have some questions for you. To me as a reader, it has like limited series written all over it. And Uh, it's a perfect project, not only just because it's, you know, it's very easy. It's a greatly uh, finely plotted work. But it's also, as you said, it's like it's got this hothouse quality to it, which makes it makes it easier to uh, adapt, you know, because of budgets and stuff. There's one like one or two settings, really, for the whole thing that that's useful to the money people in Hollywood. I know this. So uh, is there any interest? I got to believe there's interest in this thing. The, uh, mm-hmm. the rights have been snatched up, right?
1: We sold the option this summer. Yeah. And um, it is. it has some really good backing and we have an amazing writer uh, slash showrunner attached. Can we say, can we, can we say it?
0: names or is it too early or something?
1: Nope. I can tell you after we stop recording though. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, I think the thing with Hollywood is like they have these certain moments when they want to make announcements, Of course. you know, once certain, like they have the right number of people attached and then it's like, this is the moment. Um, what so about, announce- what about,
0: uh, what about actors? Are there actors attached?
1: Uh, no, not yet. No. I have, you know, I have my dream cast and everything, but, uh,
0: can we talk? No. I guess we can't talk about that either because what if it's not them, right? And then it'd well, I can
1: say I can say because there's no since nothing's been decided yet. I was um, I you know, who I would love for Bodie is Lizzie Kaplan, who mm. I was just talking about. I just said I was watching Fleischman is in trouble. She's, you know, the friend in there. She's fantastic. And if not her, here's one of the things I love about her is that we all know exactly what she was, what she looked like as a teenager because she was in Mean Girls. And and I think there, but I think there are other actors in that category too. I, I love the idea of having someone who we can, we collectively can really easily remember as a teenager. So, uh, but, um, you know, it's, the Hollywood is uh, very unpredictable. Uh, so, I'm, um, you know, uh, just kind of sit there and hope, but, but you don't believe it till you're eating the popcorn, et cetera, et cetera. yeah, um, smart,
0: smart strategy. wise strategy? Yeah. And then, as far as like the next book project marinating, like anything that you can give us hints about?
1: right. Um, I can say um, yeah, I'm saying what I'm saying publicly is this'll I'll, uh, I have several ideas, but the one that I think I'm really pursuing. In, is requiring me to do some research into the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. And, so so uh, a, kid's, a kid's book. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, really lighthearted. It's a romp. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, uh, that does not give it away actually at all. It's, it's not, not about a Nazi, nor is it a Holocaust book. It's, it's something else. But I will say that it is in many ways a book about complicity and I think the reason that this project for me is the one out of the ideas doing, it's the one that's really winning out. Is I feel like this is a very important moment to be writing about complicity. I also I think that I have some questions for you is about complicity also, but um, this this is about it in a very different way.
0: Well, that's plenty enough to have me curious. It also I think mm-hmm. indulges indulges like your history nerd. I can see how you like the history nerd yeah. in you would yeah. love diving into that era and getting to write about it. So yeah, definitely, it has been a real pleasure. I'm so grateful for the time. Uh, congratulations on all the success that you've had, uh, in particular Me in too. recent years. And with the publication of I Have Some Questions for You, it was just a delight to read.
1: Thank you so much. These were fantastic questions.
0: All right, you guys, there we go. That was my conversation with Rebecca Mackay. Her new novel, I Have Some Questions for You, is out there now on Viking Press. You can find Rebecca On the internet, her official website is rebeccamackay.com. She is on Twitter, at Rebecca Mackay. She is on Instagram, Facebook, Goodreads. Track her down. Again, the novel is called I Have Some Questions for You. Out this week from Viking Press. Go get your copy. It's a gripping read. You will tear through it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you would like to support this show, if you want to help me keep making this show, just go to patreon.com. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can support this show for as little as one dollar a month and help keep it going into the future. If you would like an other people t-shirt or another people sweatshirt, or even an other people onesie for your newborn child, you can get one over at the show's official website. Just go to ppl.com scroll down, look for the t-shirt. It's pretty easy you'll figure it out if you would like to receive my once a week email newsletter just go to otherppl.com or bradlisty.com look for the little sign up link it's free it's once a week if you would be so kind to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast i would deeply appreciate it give it a rating if you can write a review write a review it takes 2 minutes it really helps the cause if you have feedback for me if you have a question if you want to tell me a story the email address for this podcast is letters at other And if you would like to get a copy of my new novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Go get it if you want to. Coming up next on the podcast, my guest is Delia Kai. She has a debut novel out called Central Places. Had a great conversation with her, so stay tuned for that. It will be happening soon.